0: As a coach, one of the biggest things I think you need is just to be open-minded. Don't come in thinking that you know everything. Because I can guarantee you in any sport, you are never going to know everything. There's just too much to learn. There's too much to know. The game is always changing. Despite what baseball purists might think, the game is always changing. And it always will change. Because there's always some way to get better. And unless you have that mindset, you can't help a player get better if you're just thinking oh, well, I'm good. You have to be able to, I mean, if you have a player come in and you can't help them, what are you going to do? Blame the player or blame yourself? I mean, a good coach is going to say, okay, well, if I can't help them, either I need to find another coach who can, or I need to learn more and figure out how to help them. Just saying, oh, I already know everything. You're not learning from me. So I guess that's just you. That's not a good coach.
1: Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is Episode 115. And I am going to have a great conversation today with Bianca Smith. She is a real trailblazer. She grew up loving baseball, which she learned from her mom. She started watching baseball actually when she was three years old. Around the same time, I started watching hockey with my own daughter. You can never start too young for these important formative experiences. Bianca's mom was a big Yankees fan. So Bianca became a big Yankees fan too. Her entire family was active in playing sports with Bianca being particularly focused on playing soccer and basketball. As she tells it, however, when she topped out at five feet tall, basketball became a bit of a stretch. Sorry for the pun. Both her parents went to Dartmouth College, and Bianca did so as well. Here's how a profile in Dartmouth's alumni magazine describes what happened when Bianca tried to walk on to the college women's softball team. The coach says, We had a strong team that year, Coach Hansen said. But there was something different about Bianca. Her talent was raw. Seeing the kind of clarity and conviction she had about what she wanted to do, I mean, that was rare. She wanted to be a part of what we were doing and said she'd do anything to help. She had a team-first mindset. She was in soak-up mode from day one. She sat on the bench and deciphered the opposing team signs, gleaning the rhythms, noting patterns, anticipating strategy. Sure enough, says Coach Hansen, around the third or fourth inning, Here would come Bianca with her little notebook and she'd say, look out for this or pay attention to that. She could pick up signs better than anyone. Well, more than softball, it was actually baseball that she wanted to be part of. And so she actually talked herself onto the Dartmouth men's baseball team where the head coach created a role for her. And that head coach, Bob Whalen, again from the alumni magazine Profile, said this. Actually, he recalled the moment when she went to meet him and tried to convince him to get onto his coaching staff for the men's baseball team. He says, it was clear that she just loved baseball. Whenever you're around young people who are passionate about the same thing you're passionate about, you want to encourage them. She asked him about his coaching philosophy, how he organized his practices, how indoor drills differed from outdoor, how he approached putting a team together. There wasn't actually much that was going to stop Bianca. In a New York Times article earlier this year, another quote, For a stretch after graduate school, as she applied for full-time positions in baseball, Smith had eight jobs at once so she could pay her rent, sorting packages at a UPS warehouse at night, packing online orders at Target, working the cash register at Dollar Tree, driving for Uber Eats, tour guide and youth academy coach for the Texas Rangers, ticket taker for FC Dallas. For extra baseball experience, she was a volunteer assistant coach at the University of Dallas. Can you imagine managing that? I mean, it's clear that Bianca Smith had drive, had passion, had energy, had initiative. And what she really wanted was to be a coach for a professional baseball team. She became an assistant athletic director an assistant baseball coach, hitting coordinator at Carroll University. She also did stints as a coach at Case Western Reserve University, where she earned her dual JD law degree and MBA degree while working as a coach. Kind of amazing. And then the University of Dallas, where she worked as well as a coach. She also worked in baseball operations in the front offices of the Texas Rangers, the Cincinnati Reds, and Major League Baseball's commissioner's office. And this year, she made it. Bianca was a coach at the rookie league level in Florida for a minor league team called the Red Sox. That's right, the same Red Sox that fans throughout New England go absolutely berserk for, and the same Red Sox that is the fiercest rival of Bianca's beloved New York Yankees. Not only that, but in taking on this job, Bianca became the seventh, only the seventh woman to be a professional baseball coach and the first black woman to do so. So there's a lot to talk about with Bianca in this episode. One thing that became clear when you talked to her, however, is, and it's going to be apparent to you as you listen to the episode, is that she lives and breathes baseball and is prepared to do whatever it takes to be a great on-field professional baseball coach. She's at a low minor league level now, but you know, this will really be a story to watch To see how she starts to move up levels and who knows, actually might make it to the major league level one day. I've taught, coached, mentored, and worked with young, smart people in their 20s for many decades. And the one thing I can say about Bianca is that she is simply not a stoppable force. Because along with drive and passion, she brings a learning mindset to everything she does. With the baseball season over, Bianca told me she was going to go through all her notes, more video, and other materials to make sure she's fully integrated what she's been experiencing and what she's been learning as the coach for the minor league Red Sox team. It's almost like you could see her feeding bits of knowledge, plays, drills, and more into her baseball computer that is her head. Here she is, Bianca Smith. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here today with Bianca Smith. Hi, Bianca.
0: Hi, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for being on. It was really interesting to read something about you in the Dartmouth Alumni Magazine, which is where I heard about you and got a little bit of background on what you're up to. I've been at Tuck Business School of Dartmouth for 28 years, so I was definitely here when you were here as a <laughs> student. But our paths did not cross, which is not surprising given I seldom leave the graduate business buildings. It's more on me than on you. When I read a little bit about you and your background and some of the things you've been doing, I just thought this is really interesting because we just have a really eclectic group of people that we bring on to the podcast to talk about life, to talk about their experiences, talk about what they've done and how other people can learn from that experience as well. And actually, I've had in the past, the CEO of the Boston Red Sox was on in an earlier season And the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, actually, Mark Shapiro is his name. He's been on twice, once himself and then once with his father, who actually with the Cleveland Connection, you might know, I'm trying to remember his first name, but he was one of the first baseball agents. Okay.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah, I met him while I was in Cleveland.
1: I'm not surprised. Mark is a fantastic leader. The worst thing I'm going to say about him is his son is at Princeton now and not Dartmouth to play baseball. And those were his two finalists. But I'm a big Mark fan. So, yeah, there's an interesting connection. Oh, and the other person who you may know that has been on the podcast. That was one of my first guests in season one, who's a neighbor of mine, is Jim Beatty. Dartmouth, you know, Jim, he's retired now, but he was the general manager of, was it Seattle? Mm-hmm. Maybe the Expos too, Montreal Expos, and he pitched for the Yankees that you would definitely know or have yeah. heard of.
0: He's actually one of the first people I reached out to when I decided I wanted to get into baseball and really? that gave me some connections. Yeah.
1: That's great. Baseball is kind of a small community, I think, isn't it?
0: Very small. Everybody knows everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's actually interesting when you think about people starting their career and wanting to go into, I'm going to call it a niche. I don't know if that's correct or not, but it relative to some other industries, it's a niche industry and you kind of have to know people. And I'm wondering if that was a challenge for you. I mean, probably you just start calling everyone and being part of the Dartmouth community opens doors as well. But what was that like to kind of figure out how to get your foot in the door into the major league level?
0: That was pretty much it. Uh, It started out with me reaching out to the Dartmouth baseball coach, Coach Whalen. I mean, he already had connections, but just reaching out to him, working with the team, kind of getting my foot in the door there. And then when I was getting close to graduation, I reached out to pretty much every Dartmouth alum in baseball that I could find. (laughs) And majority of them, actually, I think pretty much all of them responded in some way, whether it was a call, sent back an email and kind of just talked about what they did. Sandy Alderson actually got me in touch mm. with one of their scouts who I'm still in touch with. He actually pretty much mentored me through grad school. And then from there, yeah, it just kind of expanded. You know, you meet one person, they start recommending other people, and it kind of branches off from there.
1: I think it's great. And it's a testament to, I think, in part the Dartmouth network, when almost everyone got back in touch with you. It's not that surprising. In fact, for one of my first books that I wrote, which was about failure, by the way, I contacted 20 Dartmouth alums. Not that they failed, but they knew something about the companies I was interested in. And I told them what I was interested in. I wanted to interview them. And I got 20 out of 20 responses, which I tell my colleagues in other universities, and they're kind of blown away by it. Actually, one of my former students, a Dartmouth Anna Tuck student, who you may know is Katie Griggs, who just recently became the, I think, chief operating officer of the Seattle Mariners.
0: Actually, I don't know that name.
1: And she shifted from... She was working for the Atlanta soccer team, professional soccer team, and just took on the job in the West Coast. I will connect you later. So it sounds like sports were a big part of your life growing up. Your parents were both athletes, at least at Dartmouth. What do you remember from your earliest memories as a kid? When you and your siblings out playing a lot of sports, did you go to a lot of games? I mean, what are some of those early recollections?
0: Well, we definitely didn't go to a lot of games. I think my first baseball game wasn't until I was nine. And that's because my dad got free tickets when the Yankees came in town play the Rangers. But I do remember growing up playing sports. So my siblings, we all started soccer at around three, four years old. I did dance from the time I was three or four, dabbled in karate. We went to different sports camps, a soccer camp, basketball camp. I actually was good at basketball when I was taller than everybody else. And then I stopped growing at five foot. So I couldn't really play after that. But you know, growing up, that was encouraged that we didn't just play one sport, we played multiple sports, we kind of figure out what we were good at. And then we mm-hmm. kind of got to start to specialize in high school, but it was expected that you were going to play some kind of competitive sport. And then when we weren't playing this season, I mean, the street we lived on, it was very common for us to all run out into the street. Somebody would bring out a hockey goal. We'd either play hockey or football or soccer or something. So we were constantly right. playing.
1: Yeah, that's great. And how did softball, I guess that's where it first started. how did you get to softball from, I understand at five feet basketball is not going to happen. But there are a lot of other options, including soccer, as you mentioned.
0: So I actually played soccer for 10 years. That was my sport. I thought I was going to, you know, go pro. Mia Hamm was like my favorite athlete. And then the season before high school, I, unfortunately for me, went to a high school with a really good soccer team, like ranked in the country. And my mom was convinced, and she was right, that I would not make my high school soccer team. So she put me in softball as my backup sport just to give me something else to do. And of course, I'm upset because I'm like, I want to play soccer. Yeah. She put me in softball right before high school started, so now I got to focus on this. Well, I tried out for the soccer team. I got cut three days into freshman year. Oh boy. (laughs) And thankfully, the softball team didn't cut, so I joined the softball team. I couldn't throw. I was absolutely terrible because while I knew the game, I'd never really played the game besides that one season, and thankfully picked it up really quickly. But. I'd always been a baseball fan, but yeah, softball came in really late only because I couldn't play on the soccer team. I yep. probably would have just kept playing soccer if I hadn't gotten cut.
1: But do you think, I mean, who can answer this, but do you think you would have ended up in a similar type of place, if not in baseball, maybe in soccer or not at all, if you would follow that soccer path?
0: I have no idea. I went to Dartmouth actually wanting to be a veterinarian, not working in sports at all. That was not a thing until I took my first biology class and decided this is not the path for me. I think I probably would have still stuck with baseball just because, like I said, that's been my favorite sport since I was three, whether I played it or not. But I have told people if baseball didn't work out, I do have football I could fall back on. I've got connections there. I've got connections in the soccer world, so I could fall back on that if I have to. I'd rather not, but I could see myself working in other sports if baseball just Mm -hmm. really didn't work out just because I love the sport environment.
1: Right. And so back to softball, in what ways would being part of a softball team help you for professional baseball or actually not even professional baseball, but the question is more around how softball and baseball are similar or dissimilar and what the learning is.
0: So you're talking skill development then? Yes. Because, yeah, in my view Skill development,
1: management, leadership, any aspect of, because you've been involved in both and I'm curious about, I mean, how similar is it?
0: So management and leadership, it doesn't matter the sport for any sport, your job is you're trying to win a game. So skill development might be a little bit different, because your bat's going to be different, your ball's going to be different. I've told people the swing is the same, the goal is still the same. But you're going to be working with athletes differently, because one, there is a slight difference working with girls versus boys. So it really you just have to get to know your athletes as far as skill development goes. But as far as just management and leadership, it's the same no matter what you get to know your team, you have a philosophy that you stick with. And your job is to encourage your players to play hard and Mm -hmm. to win a game. So whether that's softball, baseball, soccer, football, I mean, that part doesn't really matter. So I think what I've got, not just from playing softball, but just being on a team, is that team aspect, that team first mentality, that you do what's necessary to help the team win. It doesn't really matter how you do. I mean, in professional baseball, it's a little bit different because, yes, your individual stats matter for your contract. But overall, the goal is still you're going to win a World Series and you can't win a World Series by yourself. The team wins the World Series, not you. So you do what's necessary for the team.
1: What you're describing is not just relevant for sports, of course. It's relevant for any organization, any business. But you see it clearly in sports. When you were at Dartmouth, you tried out for the varsity softball team, or were you involved more coaching at that stage?
0: I walked on to the varsity softball team the day before preseason, my junior year. I actually was a cheerleader all four years, then walked on to the softball team, and then two months later joined the club baseball team. I didn't start working behind the scenes kind of as a manager until my senior year, and that's because I got hurt during um, preseason, tried to rehab, and ended up having to have surgery right when the season started. So I couldn't play anyway. So my coach did give me the option of leaving the team because that's a lot for somebody who they just walked on. They didn't really expect any real commitment. I was injured. I wasn't going to play. They're like, it's your senior year. We completely understand if you just want to leave and kind of enjoy your senior year. And I said, no, I made a commitment to this team. I'll do what's still necessary. I mean, I don't have to be on the field to still help the team.
1: Mm -hmm. So what did you do then?
0: Uh, A lot of it was video I could still catch our pitchers. Even though I had surgery, I pushed myself way too hard. I had hip surgery. it actually was sprinting in about four weeks. So I still ended up practicing, even though I didn't get to be in a game. I still ran bases during practices, still helped out my teammates in the field if I could during games. Like I said, I worked the camera, got the video, and even just did kind of like social media stuff. With just taking pictures, but getting video during practices, just anything that Mm -hmm. the coaches needed.
1: Did you start at that point really digging into the technical aspects of hitting or maybe even fielding or pitching or other aspects? Is that where it started or earlier or later?
0: Oh, much later. I didn't really get into that until I was with the Reds, so 18. Because remember, at the time, I knew I wanted to get in baseball, but I didn't think about coaching. I thought I wanted to be a general manager. So I wasn't really thinking player development. I was thinking like roster moves. How do I build Mm -hmm. a team? What kind of skill am I looking for? Not what kind of skill am I going to try to develop? So it was a little bit different then. Like I said, I didn't really start getting into that until I knew for sure, okay, I want to be a coach. And then I started looking at the technology, especially because I had access to it.
1: So, you know, a lot of people don't know exactly what they want to do, sometimes for a very long time, but certainly young people. And so you were focusing on front office. First of all, what was attractive to you about that? Why was that something you really thought would be a great career track for you?
0: Because I still got to be involved with the team on the field. I got to be involved with the players once you get to a certain level. And I got to be in charge. I can take orders when... Like I said, it benefits the team when I know it's Mm going to help, but Mm -hmm. I also need to feel comfortable enough that if I'm going to be working with somebody or working with my boss, I need to be comfortable enough to be able to question them if I think that there's something else we could do. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is also just be the one in charge. So I kind of like that aspect that I would get to run things.
1: Mm -hmm. But then what happened that led to the transition to the coaching side as opposed to the front office side?
0: It sort of started when I went to grad school. I worked as the director of baseball operations So while I was doing all the administrative stuff, I was also helping out on the field. I started wearing the uniform and it's fine. I haven't really mentioned this a lot. Part of the reason why I started wearing the uniform was because during batting practice, I would shag balls in the outfield. And you can ask a lot of my players, I have a bad habit of still diving or sliding for balls (laughs) when I think I can (laughs) make it. And I went through so many pairs of shorts and pants with dirt and grass stains that I finally went to my coach and said, I need baseball pants. I'm tired of ruining my pants. So that's actually what got me in uniform. And then I started working more on the field, running drills, throwing batting practice, evaluating our outfielders. By the time I graduated, I was still kind of stuck on the front office role. I think mainly because of that expectation that I put on myself and the fact that I told so many people I want to be a general manager. So that's what everybody else expected of me too. So went off to the Rangers, did my first front office internship, and they sent me to scout school. And I think that's when it really hit me like, okay, I'm not a huge fan of being in the office. I don't like sitting all day. I don't like Mm. being behind a computer. I don't like business casual. I miss being able to wear baseball pants or shorts. And I still kind of try to stick with it again, because of the expectations. I had so many Mm. people who, especially after getting two graduate degrees, they were expecting me to stay with the front office. And that's why I went off to New York worked in the commissioner's office and it was actually after that internship and after applying for the MLB diversity fellowship program, I got to the final round with two teams and both teams had the same reason for not hiring me. And it was because during my interview, it didn't seem like I actually wanted that job. And that was the kick that I needed. That was like, okay, if other teams can see that, then yeah, I can't do this because I'm just not happy. This is not where I want to be. I remember going into my mentor's office in tears because I felt Mm. like I was letting him down. Mm. Because I wanted to coach instead. Because I missed being on the field. I wanted to interact with the players. And that's when I finally accepted what I already knew. But I'd kind of been denying that I want to coach. I missed actually helping the players get better.
1: It took you to go through that journey, and actually several years, to discover what you knew, which is quite interesting. And, by the way, not that unusual for many people. I imagine, and you said it as much, it must have been difficult. Because people were helping you and supporting you. And you were advocating for what you wanted to be a general manager, one day to be a general manager, and then to, to shift and say, that's not really what it is. You had to go back and talk to a lot of people to tell them and to share where your head was at. I'm sure you did that. What were those conversations like? Were they shocked or did they also kind of deep down, they kind of knew?
0: A little bit of both. So with my parents, immediate family, siblings, I don't think they were shocked at all. They know how much, not only do I love the game, but just having been an athlete, they know how much I love just being on the field. Even if I'm not mm-hmm. playing, I just like being on the field. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they were surprised about that. Some of the, like the players that I worked with, I don't think they were surprised either just because of the way that I interacted with them. Some of the coaches I've worked for were a little surprised that I changed my mind, but not too surprised that I changed it to coaching. So I think the people who were most shocked were more of the people who were already in professional baseball. They knew my background. They were a little surprised more just again, because I had the graduate degree specifically to be a general manager. I still have people who, even after this job, have still said, oh, great, this is your first step to being a general manager. I still have family. who's like, oh, yeah, you know, this will help you really in the front office. And I keep saying, I don't want to be there. Like, stop trying to push me into the front office. I don't want to go
1: <laughs> anywhere. Let me ask you, though, do you know for sure that, I don't know, five years from now or 10 years from now, you might say, yeah, I am ready. It wasn't the right thing then, but now I'm ready. Is that possible?
0: I highly doubt it. And I've actually had this conversation this year with a couple of the coaches that I worked with because I even explained to them, it's not something I just come out and just tell people, hey, I've got two graduate degrees. I actually don't even remember how the conversation came up. I think I was messing with one of the coaches and I mentioned I have a law degree. And when they asked why, that's when I told them why I thought I wanted to be a general manager. And when that conversation came up, a lot of them said, no, we actually can't see you doing that. A lot of people have said they think I would be a good general manager, but just with Mm -hmm. my personality. And Mm -hmm. the way I am on the field, they can't see me being happy in that role. Like I said, I don't like sitting behind a computer all day. I don't like being in the office all day. I mean, the idea of getting to wear, again, shorts or baseball pants to work is one of the best things ever. Getting to directly interact with the players and really have a direct hand in helping them get better But not only that, being in the dugout during games, that atmosphere, that energy, the in-game strategy, that's what attracted me to baseball in the first place was the strategy in-game, not the strategy off the field. While as fascinating as it is, that's just not what fuels me. That's not where my passion lies. And I haven't been happier since being able to just coach. So it five, 10 years, I mean, I tell people it's a good backup if something happens and I suddenly can't find a coaching job, but it's not going to be because I decided, oh, I'm going to go back to the front office. It's going to be because I pretty much got pushed into it. And mm-hmm. even when that happens, I'm still going to be fighting to be back on the
1: field. So what does it take to be a coach? I'm thinking about major league coaches and I'm going to guess most of them are former ball players. Maybe not as much. It's probably 100% 20 or 30 years ago or close to that. And then the stereotype is of course catchers because you know they're kind of the central processing unit for the team because the pitching is so central. And your background is different for a lot of reasons, not just not being a player, but being a woman, being a woman of color as well, but more generally in terms of how important it is and how common it is to have played the game. How do you think about that? And have you been challenged by others, not because of gender or race, and I'm going to ask you about that, but because you haven't played the game? I mean, of course you have, but you haven't played the game at the level that, you know, Joe Torre played the game or Aaron Boone to stick with the Yankees for a minute.
0: Well, I would say this: if I had joined as a coach you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have been challenged. Yeah. I actually haven't really been challenged. And I think that is, like you said, it's still common, but it's less prevalent to have mm-hmm. played at the major league level. I mean, with our rookie team, with our coaches, I think we only have one coach who made it to the major leagues. And it was for a few weeks. So it's not too uncommon now. Mm -hmm. And while I might not have played at the minor league level, I actually saw a comment on a tweet before or a couple weeks ago about the lack of coaches who had played at a high level and how that they think it's necessary. And somebody responded, well, if you're just talking about, you know, the pressure and the atmosphere of playing a game, you can get that at any level because that's kind of just on you. Like if you played at the college level, you still have that pressure. I mean, the pressure is still going to be the same. You can still understand that as a player." you're still facing, like, you're still trying to do your best. You're still trying to get better. You're still competing for a spot. You're still trying to help your team win. That doesn't change. I mean, I would say it's different if you never got past the little league level because, yeah, it's probably not as much pressure there. But right, having right. played in college, mm-hmm. even if I didn't play baseball, just having played the sport, you're still mm-hmm. facing pressure and adversity. So I think that's one of the important thing as a coach. I don't think it's necessary to have played at high level. And I think it helps to have played the sport itself. Just because you'll understand more the mechanics. Like I have a thing where I don't like to give my hitters a drill unless I do it myself. Partly because there are some players who I could just explain the drill and they get it. They understand what they're looking for. They understand what they're trying to do. Other players, they need to see the visualization. They actually need to see me doing it and then they get it. So if I can't do it, I can't help as many players as I'd like. I'm kind of stuck with only the ones who understand just from me talking about it. So it certainly helps to have played the game at some level so you have a little bit more understanding. But that's more for direct skill development as far as just leading a team. I mean, as a coach, one of the biggest things I think you need is just to be open-minded. Don't come in thinking that you know everything because I can guarantee you in any sport, you are never going to know everything. There's just too much to learn. There's too much to know. The game is always changing despite what baseball purists might think the game is always changing. And it always will change because there's always some way to get better. And unless you have that mindset, you can't help a player get better. If you're just thinking, Oh, well, I'm good, you have to be able to I mean, if you have a player come in, and you can't help them, what are you going to do blame the player or blame yourself? I mean, a good coach is going to say, Okay, well, if I can't help them, either I need to find another coach who can, or I need to learn more and figure out how to help them just saying, Oh, I already know everything, you're not learning from me. So I guess that's just you. That's not a good coach.
1: Right. I think that's absolutely true in other endeavors. You know, when you think about coaching backgrounds, some of the greatest athletes that became coaches haven't necessarily done well. I think about, you know, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player ever, and he was not a successful coach. And and actually, if you look at Michael Jordan, who's had many different positions in basketball, arguably the greatest basketball player ever, certainly top three, and not close to the same record in any of the other post-playing activities he's done. But go back to Gretzky. I don't know if it's true, but when you're that gifted, it's so innate, it's so natural. Of course you worked and he worked day and night to get that, but he has something he was born with as well. And so other mere mortals, they don't have that. They can't have that. And so how do you teach them? You have to teach them things that maybe they themselves never had to teach. I don't know if that's true, And these are superstar examples. You know, when you talk about obviously Gretzky or Jordan, The question really is, and now I'm generalizing to other fields outside of sports, if you played the game, then you have operations experience, so to speak. You were in the factory (laughs) and there are plenty of people running organizations or or senior management positions in organizations or CEOs, for that matter. And a CEO, for example, would combine the coach business and the front office business. So it's a little bit unusual in that respect, but they didn't necessarily have operations experience. And even I've seen this, you know, not just me, but many other people about teachers or professors. How can you teach something if you haven't run a company? And of course, the answer is easy. You study a hundred companies and your database of knowledge is so far beyond what anyone, say, CEO coming back to teach a class can possibly have, even though he or she would have way more in-depth knowledge about their specific experience. They can't possibly know about the hundred companies. So I'm a firm believer you do not have to play the game But I do think it's a bit of a frame-breaking thing in more traditional industries, such as sports. So it's interesting to hear how you've described it and how it's changed quite a bit. I think
0: there's a benefit to
1: both. Mm.
0: Experience obviously does help, but I just don't think it's necessary anymore. As long as you have that open mind that you're willing to learn from other people who have that experience, or you're willing to go out and try to find new ways to do things. It definitely benefits to have a little bit of both on your staff.
1: So curiosity and creativity, if I can put some words into what you just described, are important. What are some of the other characteristics or skill sets that you think are really important for coaching?
0: One, being willing to admit when you're wrong. Like I said, kind of going with the whole coaches coming in thinking they know everything. Players also don't like that. Yeah, there's some players who they want that coach who has a lot of experience. They want that coach who's confident, yes, but not arrogant. I found that the players that respond the best to me and the ones that actually make the most gains are the ones that I'm actually able to have a conversation with. Not me just telling them, hey, you need to do this. It's me giving a suggestion and then finding out if it actually works for them. And then giving them the power to make their own suggestions or work off of what I gave them. I mean, some players, until you get to know them, until you get to know their specific bodies, not every drill is going to work for them. You need to figure out what actually feels comfortable and they need to be comfortable enough to tell you, hey, this doesn't feel right. Sometimes it's because they haven't done it long enough. And, you know, once you build that trust, you can convince them, "Okay, just try it for a little bit longer. And then if it still doesn't work, we'll try something else. But it's also not having that mentality of, well, what I said was right. You're going to have to do it anyway, because then you also just lose that trust with players. Coaching now is not just telling a player what to do. It's actually working with them. I've said this before, too, that a coach's ultimate job should be to make their job obsolete. Our job is not just to make better players. It's to make players their own coaches. They should be able to make those adjustments on their own. Like I've explained it to you, baseball players. Your coaches aren't going to be yelling at you from the dugout to make an adjustment. You need to be able to make that on your own. The best players are the ones who can adjust on their own because they have that body awareness. They know what they're looking for. They know what they did wrong and they're able to make that adjustment in game. And that has nothing to do with us telling you what to do in game. It has to do with hopefully us putting you in that position to coach yourself. So it should get to the point where you don't really need us or if you need us, it's more of a sounding board to kind of bounce ideas off of to try to get better.
1: That's a really interesting philosophy, and I really like it. Is it one that other people, as far as you know, have been talking about, or is it a Bianca Smith philosophy?
0: I've seen a few people saying the same thing. Just the idea that a player should be his own coach. But I do remember reading at least once how a coach's job, I mean, a coach should become obsolete at some point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, I read that, and I was like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. You look at the best players in any sport. They're the ones who are, again, able to make that adjustment on their own. They might go to their coach and, you know, ask, you know, some questions and kind of go back and forth, but they're not the ones who are constantly looking to the coach to try to make a change. They're the ones who can kind of make their change on their own. That's where um, you get baseball coaches talking about feel. I tend to give drills that over-exaggerate different motions so they can feel the difference between what they're doing and what they should be doing. So that way, when they're in a game, they can feel it themselves and think, okay, I need to make this adjustment because this is what it should be. This is what it should feel like. That's where that feel comes in. They need to be able to feel that on their own without us having to tell them constantly because then otherwise we're not doing our job.
1: Do you tell your players that your ultimate goal is that they won't need you, that they can do this on their own? Or how do you yeah. convey that message to them? You just tell them.
0: Yeah, no. I tell them the purpose of this is so you can feel it on your own and you can make mm-hmm. adjustments on your own because they also should understand why are you giving them this drill? I mean, yeah, there are going to be players who trust you enough that they don't have to ask anymore. But especially when you're first starting off, you build that trust by including them in their development, by explaining this is why we're doing this. If you don't like it, then okay, we can have a conversation and figure out something else. But I think it's really important, unless you have a player that just, they don't care. That's fine. But it takes a while before you get to that point where they just trust whatever you give them. But i found it helps to build that trust, at least explain, why am I giving this to you? And yes, it's because I want you to be able to do this on your own. I don't want you to have to constantly come to me. Or if you come to me, it should be because we're having a conversation about something you want to fix.
1: Yeah. Do you create some of your own drills that you haven't seen others do in baseball?
0: I've done like one or two. It's not really creating my own drill. It's kind of taking a drill and doing it slightly differently. Our outfield and base running coordinator said it perfectly that unless you're Abner Doubleday, everything (laughs) you do has been stolen from somebody else. That's like, yeah, that's pretty true. There's not a lot of original ideas anymore in this game. It's pretty much taking what other people have done and making it your own.
1: Well, that makes me think of, and maybe this is getting into the front office a little bit more, but it makes me think about analytics. And, you know, Moneyball was this kind of revolutionary book that opened the eyes of a lot of people. I think baseball insiders knew, what's his name, is it Bill? Bill James. And so a lot in analytics, it was new. Not anymore. I remember talking to Mark Shapiro, the CEO of the Blue Jays, and he said, you know, the best team's they all know this stuff. Now, there's always some more improvement. There's always some new innovations that are coming out. So you got to stay on top of that. It's not like you can just forget about it, but it's becoming less of a differentiator over time. But it was a big one for a period of time. And I'm wondering what you think about baseball analytics in general and the extent to which it could provide a competitive advantage in 2021.
0: Well, first of all, I tell people that baseball analytics didn't start with Moneyball analytics have been around since the early 1900s they just haven't been using it the same way we've been keeping track of batting average on base percentage slugging for decades Mm -hmm. this is not new we just haven't been running the team the same way that we do now that we're actually deciding to utilize these analytics a little bit more so with a lot of fans will complain that you know analytics are ruining the game because they're so new or we never used this before i'm like that's Not true. Teams have used it before, just not this extensively.
1: But aren't there these newer metrics? I mean, W.A.R. wins above replacement... War, and and many, many, many others. Some of them have got to be, you know, the last 20 years or so.
0: Oh, yeah. There are new metrics for sure. But the idea of just using statistics, using Saber metrics Mm -hmm. to help win a game is not new. And like I said, it's the extent that we're using it, the type, the different Mm -hmm. metrics. And now that we're delving into what kind of metrics we could use, that's different, yes. But the idea of just using them in general is not new at all. This has been around for, again, decades. Just because you don't understand a certain metric doesn't make it bad. I think it's just really important that you do understand what the metric is for and how it's used. That's one of the things I wouldn't say have an issue with this in player development, but it's the same with the front office, too, that if you use a metric poorly or you don't understand it well enough, then yes, it Mm -hmm. could hurt you. As long as you understand it, and I think it's really important that the players understand it as well. It's not good enough to just tell them, hey, this is your number. They need to understand what it means and why is it important? So I think there's an extent where numbers can only do so much because we're still dealing with humans. These are still, you know, humans playing a game. There are going to be factors that we can't quantify that's going to go into a game. I mean, some of the best examples I've heard was people saying, you know, when a guy has an off day, a lot of the times it has nothing to do with his numbers or his skill. It's just because, you know, he could have had an argument with his wife before he came into the game and that threw him off mentally. How are you supposed to show that with numbers? So you still have to remember that you are dealing with humans. And that's why the human aspect is still so important. But I think analytics does help. We do still have tendencies. That is one thing with humans, especially in sports. Pitchers, hitters, they all have their tendencies. And if you can take advantage of that, it'll help you win ballgames. And a lot of those tendencies you can get from numbers. I mean, just something simple as a spray chart and not just a spray chart, but telling you what percentage do they hit in this situation. That's so a, spray,
1: a, a spray chart then shows where your batted balls will go on the field. Is that what it is?
0: Yeah. So you can have a very simple spray chart where it's just showing you every single ball that the players hit, where it's gone. I typically do, whether it's a hard hit, soft hit, because that'll also determine, you know, positioning. If I've got a guy who continually hits to right field, but he only hits soft balls to right field, I'm going to move in my right fielder. If we know that he hits some hard mm-hmm. pull side, we're going to mm-hmm. move our left fielder back. If he hits primarily in the gap. So, I mean, and that's just basic stuff. Then you get into the really deep information where, again, you have percentage, not only percentage of where they hit and when they hit it, but specific situations. When they see this pitcher and it's a 2-1 count with a runner at second, how often does he do this? I mean, you can get very deep into that. And that's just with positioning. I mean, there's so much more that you can get. I remember looking at, you know, scouting reports of opposing pitchers. How often do they throw this specific pitch against this specific batter in this Mm. situation? How does that help you? Well, now your batter is ready. I mean, they know what they can expect. If they're facing a specific pitcher, it's a two one count. And 75% of the time, he's going to throw a slider. You could probably expect a slider. That's this is interesting. An, that's a competitive advantage.
1: Right. This is interesting because, of course, the pitcher and the, or certainly the pitcher's coaches, they know those tendencies on the other side. And so is it the case that even though you know your tendency, you still can't change that? Or in other words, what you're saying is, well, you can predict, not with 100% accuracy, obviously, but you can predict what the pitcher is going to throw to you. And on the other side, you would say, well, if you know that's the case, why don't you switch it up? You know, so it's a constant cat and mouse game, but it sounds like these tendencies are real, more long lasting.
0: Well, that's what baseball is. It's a very reactive game. You'll look at, you know, when pitching velocity goes up, batters start paying attention to that. Then, you know, home runs will go up because they're chasing the fastball. Well, what's going to happen after that? Once hitters start catching up to that velo, pitchers start focusing more on breaking ball and focus more on movement. Velo starts mm-hmm. to go down because we're focused now on something different. So it's a lot of hitters chasing pitchers and what pitchers do in reaction to that. And what you just said, I have brought this up with teams, too. It's like if we know our own tendencies, mm-hmm. we can also go against that. If they are expecting a slider... Now, say if it's the pitcher's best pitch, of course he's going to throw a slider because there's not a very good chance they're going to hit it anyway. Just because you Mm -hmm. expect it doesn't mean you can hit it. Right. But if that's not your best pitch and you just happen to throw it there because they're not expecting it, at some point, if they are expecting it, they're going to hit it. So you are going to change something up. But knowing your own tendencies, too, definitely matters. It certainly helps. I mean, you see this in games all the time. I remember, um, I forgot which game it was, but just a couple weeks ago, one of our own games, one of our batters noticed, like he was just watching video, he's watching the game, and noticed that the pitcher's strikeout pitch was always a high fastball. Now, a lot of our guys probably weren't expecting it because they weren't paying attention, but when that batter gets up, he gets into that situation, pitcher throws a high fastball, we get a double because he's expecting it. So what's going to happen? pitcher's probably not going to be throwing that high fastball as often he's going to react to that and he's going to change it and then yeah we're going to have to you know work off of that too so the analytics certainly helps it is still going to be a reactive game though we can't always rely on the analytics because something's going to change the best players are going to beat those analytics they're going to beat those numbers and then you have to play off of that
1: what about the psychological side of coaching how do you learn how to do that and of course on tv and movies this is like the big thing, right? It's always about this brainstorm. I mean, I'm thinking about Ted Lasso. I'm sure you must have watched that series because he's a coach. I mean, it's a different sport, different country, et cetera. And he does various psychological things, but more generally psychology. I mean, what do you think about that? And how do you use that to help your team and your players become more successful?
0: Basically the mental side of the game, which Mm. coaches are finally starting to acknowledge is really important. I think that's up there, which is skill development as a coach, especially once you get to the professional level, because, I mean, even the guys at the rookie level, they might be at the rookie level, but they're there for a reason. They have the skill. There might be little things we need to tweak, little things that you just consistently practice. You see major leaguers practice, you know, short hops constantly, not because they can't do it, but because it helps them stay fresh. It helps them stay on top of it. A lot of what coaching is at to a point, is actually, yeah, just being that psychologist. It's talking them through the failures. It's talking them through adversity, helping them get through that. One of the things I like to give at least my college guys was we would do breathing exercises at the end of the day or at the end of practice just to get them to calm them down, especially because we practice at 9 o'clock at night. They've got class in the morning, so we want to be able to make sure that they actually get good sleep, too. So we're calming them down from practice. And then before practice, we would do visualization. You're visualizing the actual practice. They know what the practice plan is. They can visualize actually doing well in practice. It's the same thing, you know, on deck. Some guys might visualize their at-bat. I mean, You could visualize an entire game and have actually played an entire game just in your head. And then again, facing adversity. Some coaches don't like to say baseball is a game of failure, but it is. You fail seven out of 10 times and you're an all-star. I tell people the ones who are all-stars though, aren't the ones who fail seven out of 10 times. They're the ones who bounce back from those seven failures to succeed three out of those ten times. How are you going to come back from those failures and make sure you're only failing seven out of ten and not eight out of ten? How are you going to make sure that strikeout you just had and your last at bat? isn't going to come back to haunt you the next step back because that's all you're thinking about. You can learn from your mistakes, yes. Because otherwise, then you're just, I don't know what we're doing here. You should be learning from your mistakes. But it's not the mistakes that's the problem. It's when you don't learn from it and you continue to dwell on it. And that's the mental side of the game. That's not something you can actually see. And that's such an important part as a coach is being able to work with your players and get through that. Especially the ones who, like I said, I got the ones who come in, they're used to being Mm -hmm. the best of the best. And all of a sudden, they're facing the other best of the best. They're going to fail a lot,
1: mm-hmm. and this is true also. As you go up in any level in any field, the game constricts to the most talented people. And now you have to figure out a way to be better, to differentiate. And I think I'm trying to now remember what Mark Shapiro said about this. He was visiting my Tuck class as well, and he was talking about minor league players. And I think he said that the biggest differentiator. I mean, there's exceptions, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Okay, he's born a certain way. Don't worry about him. But the vast majority, they don't got that. They got a high level of talent, but there's a lot of them. And the differentiator is the extent to which they are personally driven to get better and are doing the work mm-hmm. to try to get better. And that includes all the things that you've been talking about. Do you see, can you tell when a player, even a rookie ball is like that, that they just have that thing that whatever their talent level is, and it's again, by definition, high, that they just want to get better, and they're always working on it. You must love that as a coach when you see it, but is it easy to see?
0: A lot of times it is, because sometimes it's as easy as the player who continues to come in after wants to get more at bats. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not always the ones who just want to hit. It's usually the ones that come in with a plan and say, hey, I want to work on this. I've had players who will come into a cage and say, hey, can you just throw me curveballs? Because that's what I've been struggling with. I just want to work on curveballs. Just coming in and hitting off a tee is not Mm -hmm. really a plan. That's more getting your frustration out. Coming in and knowing, okay, this is what I struck out on. This is what I want to work on. Those are the players that want to get better because they're actively trying to learn from where they messed up. A player that makes an error in the field of you know, it might be, again, short hops. Those are the players who they're going to come in and ask, hey, can we work on this? Can we do this? Yeah. The ones who ask questions, not the ones who, I mean, yeah, you're going to get frustrated. I understand that. I'm never going to get upset at a guy who might get frustrated right after bad at bat. But the ones who want to get better are the ones who don't let that affect them. The next at bat, they get frustrated, they get over it, and then they ask questions. How can I do better? Where did I miss? What should I have been looking for? They're the ones who actually ask for help not the ones who just assume, oh, well, I already have the skill. I don't need to ask for help. Either I'm just bad or, you know, I'll be fine. It's the ones who they figure out ways to get better by asking for help to get better. They know that they're not at that position yet. Those are the ones that really succeed, are the ones who are always looking for ways to better themselves.
1: Yeah, and it's a great lesson because it applies far beyond baseball or sports. It's true for whatever you're trying to do. I'm curious in that vein about how you learn Not how you got to learn what you've already known, but how you keep on learning. Do you have a method of capturing this? Because every day that you're doing something, you're learning. And I'm just curious about that. How do you keep advancing the Bianca Smith kind of expertise as a coach?
0: Well, during the off-season, and I'll be doing a lot of this this off-season, a lot of clinics, a lot of conventions, a lot of Mm. uh, camps for coaches where I just go in and I write notes. I mean, yeah, I'll probably ask some questions. But this is the time for me to shut up and not be the coach. This is the time for me to be the student and learn from the others who've been successful coaches and take whatever I can get. During the season, I don't get to do it as much. But I learn from our players, I might see something that a player does. And you know, I'll pull out my phone quickly and jot the note down. Like, hey, this looks cool. Either I want to look it up, or I want to learn more about it. So always just writing down little things. If I don't know something, I'm going to ask somebody. I'm going to figure out a way to learn it. And then, you know, practice what you preach. Like I practice it. And even something like uh, to throwing BP. Not many coaches can actually come in and throw a curveball from 30 to 40 feet away. But it's something I actually learned to do because I, you know, I would work with the pitching coaches. I would try to figure out how to do that. And it might not seem like a big thing, but yeah, when your player wants you to come in and throw him a breaking ball, but he doesn't want it off the machine because he wants to see the arm action, that helps them get better. And that helps me as a coach as well. So a lot of it is yeah, just listening to other coaches, asking questions, keeping those contacts and being a firm believer of there's no such thing as too much information. What's important is how you compartmentalize it and how you use it. A lot of people I've heard that they think there's too much information out there you're not going to use all of it. I'm like, yeah, that's true. You're not going to use all of it. The best coaches are the ones who know when to use it in what situation, but you can't use it if you don't know it. So at least know it and learn it first and then figure out, okay, can I use this? And I might not be able to use it now, but I might be able to use it later. So it's Mm -hmm. still helpful to have. It's not easy though, keeping all that information organized. And that's when it's like a lot of notes, a lot of note taking. Um, My phone is filled with baseball questions and baseball research that I want to do. And I just haven't had time. So I'll start delving into that and, again, just reaching out to other successful coaches and just asking questions constantly.
1: Yeah. You became well-known, I think, in the sports industry in part because you're the first black female coach in professional baseball history. How do you feel about that? Because that has to do with identity and you have a whole professional skill set identity. It has nothing to do with gender or race, but that's how... And it's inevitable that would happen. That's how many people will describe you.
0: I actually never wanted to be the first. I was Mm -hmm. really hoping somebody else would beat me to it. I mean, a lot of people assumed that, yeah, I would be the first because I'm one of the only. But I also said, if you're waiting for me to be the first, we're waiting too long. Somebody else should have beaten me to it already. Honestly, I don't care about that title at all. What's exciting to me is that this past year was the first time Coaching was my only job. I didn't have a second or third job I had to do to pay the bills. All I got to do was focus on coaching. That was my goal. And that's all I cared about. I don't care about the title at all. I'm happy to be an inspiration if that's what happens. I'm happy to finally broke that barrier. But I wish it hadn't taken so long.
1: All right. I think you've said that you've experienced more challenges due to your gender being a woman than your race. Is that accurate? That I read that correctly? And you agree with that? Really?
0: Yeah. I've never had a coach tell me I wouldn't be hired because I was black. I had coaches tell me I wouldn't be hired because I was a woman.
1: Somebody actually said that to you. More than one person actually said that to you.
0: Well, I've had one person said I would never be hired as a coach because I was a woman. And I've had others who say it would be more difficult or that my players wouldn't respect me or listen to me because I was a woman. It was never because I was black
1: yeah and when you heard that it probably just made you double down even further to prove them all wrong but oh uh, yeah. Just is, use is a there, <laughs> yeah but has there been any truth to the player respect issue do you feel like you've had to work harder because you're a woman as opposed to a male that a male coach who shows up and looks the way a coach might be expected to look like?
0: I'll admit there have been a couple of players who I think I had to work harder than a man Mm. probably would have. But my supervisor actually explained this really well because I brought this up to him once, not because I was having an issue, but because I was actually surprised about how receptive the players were, how quickly they were. And he said, especially at the professional level, there is kind of an expectation already. Players come in expecting their coaches to have been hired because they're good coaches. They don't care what they look like as long as they can help them. Like I said, there might be one or two, like a couple that might have taken a little bit longer to get through because I was a woman. But for the most part, I feel like most of the players that it took a while is just because I was a new coach. You have to build up that relationship and that trust with players. A lot of them immediately came up to me, introduced themselves. I got to know them. Others took a little bit longer, and I have a philosophy of not forcing myself on a player. I just kind of let them get used to me at their own pace. It's just something that I think helps build a relationship more. I'm still going to be that one who's there. If they need help, they need me to flip, they need me to work with them, I'm going to be there. I'll ask them, you know, how are you doing? Ask about family, all that stuff. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I'll just kind of sit back and just let them go at their own pace. And I think that's been really helpful. But for the most part, majority of them, I don't think being a woman really is had too much of an effect. Some of the things they, they say around me, they might uh, censor themselves at first because they get nervous. <laughs> totally. But once right. they figure out I'm just like any of the other coaches, then they start mm-hmm. to relax and it's just, they treat me just like any of the other coaches.
1: Right. And there are, I don't know what the number is, you might know, but quite a few other women who are coaches in professional baseball. So you have that kind of peer group already and people that have come before you in that respect, right?
0: Yeah. As I try to tell people, I'm actually the seventh woman to coach professional baseball. So there have been quite a few of us and there's four others right now who are coaching.
1: It's very interesting to see that we're in 2021 and these things are just starting to gain a little bit of momentum. And it's true in the front office. There's now a general manager who's a woman, right? Which got a lot of publicity and someone broke a big barrier, but it's still a small number a tiny number. And some people would say, wow, it's a lot because women don't play professional baseball. So what's up with that? And then other people, maybe like me and others, are going to say, well, this is a talent pool. And if you're going to eliminate 50% of the potential talent pool, then of course, you're not going to have the same level of talent that you otherwise could. And that's true in every industry. So it's not really a question. It's just a kind of a puzzlement that we're in 2021 and we're just talking about this and starting to see that. To your point earlier, I think that why to take this lock? for you. Well,
0: I think part of it is also this is still a game of people hire who they know. And like I said earlier, I mean, this is a small industry. People will hire who they know. People will hire who looks like them. People will hire based on word of mouth. And a lot of that is that's one of the reasons why there are so many professional players who would immediately become coaches because mm-hmm. they either get to work for their previous team or again, the word of mouth where somebody knows them and they're going to bring them in. So for women, it's a little bit harder because we already don't have that connection after having played professional baseball. So now we need to know somebody who's in professional baseball sometimes to get us in. And that's with everybody, but we just have less of those contacts than men would.
1: Sure. So that's
0: one of the reasons why I think it takes longer is we're finally at the point where baseball's not just relying on the people they already know.
1: It does strike me as being quite ironic because we have this analytics revolution about evaluating talent, baseball player talent, and we're supposed to throw out the old word of mouth and old habits that were not based on data. But yet when it comes to talent that are not players. We're not anywhere close to that. I mean, that's what it sounds like as opposed to looking for the world's best talent that have the aptitude and the interest to become a coach or front office. We have this kind of system still in place that's decades and decades old.
0: Well, it's definitely getting better.
1: It is getting better, but I think you could see the irony in that. It's just really slow uh, changing game. (laughs) It
0: took took like a hundred years just to finally accept that analytics is helpful. It's going to take more than you know, a decade to suddenly start changing the hiring practices, too.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. going
0: to be slow moving.
1: <laughs> you know, one other thing I'm curious about, if you have a perspective on it, as I saw a statistic about the percentage of major league players that are black and how it's really declined dramatically. I think it's maybe as low as 8% now compared to almost three times as many back in the 70s. And I don't know if that's something you've looked into or thought much about, but it is a pretty significant shift over time.
0: I not only looked at that, I actually did a research paper in grad school Mm -hmm. on uh, the lack of diversity in baseball, focusing front office and players. And I found one of it is uh, there's that generational issue where if you're not Mm -hmm. passing down the game, it's Mm -hmm. hard to get into it. And I didn't necessarily grow up in a baseball family, but my mom was a diehard baseball fan. And she's the one who introduced me to the game. And it kind of surprises people because it wasn't my Mm -hmm. dad. He's gradually learning more about the game because I'm in it. But Mm -hmm. my mom was the one who taught me the strategy. She was the one who got me into softball. My sister is the one who goes to games with me. So if you don't, one, if you don't already have that generational, where you're just passing down Mm -hmm. that love, that makes it hard. And then I found also, this is an expensive sport especially now with you're expected to play on travel teams. You've got different facilities that you've got to pay coaches to you know, teach you how to play the game. I mean, just buying the equipment, forget trying to be a catcher, just buying a bat is like $200 now. And you got to get a new one every couple of years. And then you got to get the glove. And then you have to have access to balls and then the field and then even just a team. It's You can't play pickup baseball with, you know, three people. So having that kind of access, I mean, if you're living in an inner city, you're not going to be able to just find a baseball field. It's Mm -hmm. not like basketball or even football where you could just play touch football or flag football. So you got that expense issue. And then I also noticed there's also a return on investment. Say you've got a chance to play professional basketball, professional football or professional baseball. Your return on investment is going to be a lot higher in basketball or football because you mean you go off to college. You play there. You can get a scholarship, which that's already an issue in itself. The NCAA scholarships are terrible for baseball. But then now you have to decide, okay, I've got a shot of being drafted by a football team where I could play my first year or I get drafted by a baseball team where it might take me five or six years to make any sort of money, even if it's guaranteed you still have a better shot of making money as a football or a basketball player than you do as a baseball player. So why would I go play baseball, I'm going to focus on the sport that's actually going to generate Mm -hmm. money. So there's a lot of factors, I think that are affecting black kids playing baseball. And I'll admit that is one thing that I'm hoping to start working on. I mean, I know the Players Alliance group of African American baseball players, former current that gotten together and try to help change this. And I mean, i have a goal of getting to the point where I could travel around the country and help host camps and clinics for underprivileged children, where they can just come out and play on a weekend, even if it's just kind of setting that foundation, those fundamentals, and then they can continue to learn on their own. But you got to get them started. You have to get them interested in the game first. And right now, there's just not that interest. And then don't, don't even get me started on the lack of uh, attention span with the game. <laughs> the game actually hasn't gotten much longer than it was in the past. But unfortunately, again, when you don't have somebody teaching you the strategy and the intricacies, all you're watching is a guy hit a ball with the bat. And a lot of times that doesn't even happen. So you're just sitting there watching a guy throw a ball to another guy. If you think of it that way, it's a very boring game.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: But once you actually understand the strategy and we get more, you know, balls in play and less strikeouts and just home runs, it becomes more interesting. But you have to pass that information on.
1: Mm. One kind of question on something you touched on that's more of a technical question. So a great athlete in basketball or football has the potential to start for a professional team. And in baseball, is it like never happened that you come out of the draft and play? Or it's rare as what I'm... I
0: think it's happened once or twice.
1: Now, the question really is, why is it in baseball that it takes another three, four, five years of development when that's not the case in those two other sports?
0: Part of it is just, again, the skill development. It's not just skill. I mean, the game gets faster, even from the rookie level to low A. The higher you go, the faster it gets, the better talent you're seeing. But it's also the mental side. The last thing a team wants to do is send up a kid who is probably going to struggle, probably going to you know fail for a while, because it's usually what happens. And mentally, they're not ready because then that just throws them off completely. You could send them back to rookie level and they're just never back to what they used to be because they're not used to failing. So a lot of that mental side comes into it. But there's also, I mean, there's more turnover in football. Maybe not in basketball, but there's more turnover in football with injuries. You mean, you got roster sizes. With baseball, pitching probably has more turnover than anybody else. I mean, if you're a pitcher, you have a better shot of making it to the majors faster than position player. Because say you're a position player, you could be a triple A you're a shortstop. But the starting shortstop on the major league team is only 23, 24 years old. He's really good. He's got a contract signed for six years. You're not going Mm -hmm. unless he gets hurt. You're not going to make you're stuck in AAA for at least five or six more years. Mm -hmm. So unless yeah, you get traded to another team and you get a chance to play then there's also it's not just on the player. And that's something we've actually had to talk to players about when they're asking, well, why haven't I got called up yet? I'm like, Because there's four or five other guys ahead of you right now. It's not on you. Like, unfortunately, not everything is just because of your skill. You might be ready skill wise, you might be ready mentally, physically, everything. But unfortunately, we've got somebody who's slightly better still who's playing right now. It's just not a good fit. So there's a lot that goes into it. That is why, you know, it takes several years for players to be ready or even get to the major league level, even if they are ready.
1: Right. You mentioned your mom before, and she taught you the game. And of course, you know, tragically, she's passed away. But she obviously would be very proud of you. My mom lived to a longer age, but I think about her all the time. She didn't teach me teaching <laughs> or being a professor, but she was a fantastic mom. And so I talked to her, not in a crazy way, but I talked to her. And I wonder if you do the same to your mom and sometimes.
0: Sometimes. I mean, it'll come up where I think, wow, well, I wish I could tell her this or... Yeah wonder what you'd say about this. But I think, I mean, also just having the support. I mean, my dad, my stepmom, my stepdad have been great, especially considering they're not baseball people. They'll sit and let me rant about a game. They'll (laughs) sit and let me rant about a player. I mean, watching the World Series last night, we didn't have it on the TV, but I had it on my phone and my dad would occasionally like peek over and see what was going on. Ask me what the score was. There'd be a, Mm -hmm. a play that happens. And I'd be like, dad, look at this. (laughs) <laughs> I think, like, yeah, my mom was the one who introduced me to the game. But I've also said my dad and my step parents are the reason why I got to stay in the game and why I got to work in the game. I mean, they did everything possible for me emotionally, fi- mentally, financially, physically. I said that I'm in Texas right now. I drove here from Florida uh, a couple days ago. I'm actually living with my parents to save money. So I don't have to pay for rent for a couple of months. And that's because they're like, Oh, yeah, we got no problem. Like I'm gonna be using their address as my permanent address. I got my storage down here. And they've been actually, it's another reason why it's so hard to get into the game too. is as interns, you don't get paid well, you can depending on the team and how many hours you work. But it's really hard, especially when so many teams expect you to do an unpaid internship to start especially if you're working in the miners, you're not gonna get paid well at all. So unless you have that financial support, it's almost impossible to get your foot in the door with experience.
1: Yeah, this is generally true in some industries that in companies or organizations that are among the most desirable, that there's just so much demand, people wanna be part of that and you see it and then it takes a while. You know, the economists could talk about a tournament model. It's true for baseball players as well. It's almost like you've entered a tournament or a lottery ticket. And when you win, the payoff is gigantic. Of course, we all read about the amazing compensation that goes to professional athletes. But the vast, vast, vast majority of them are nowhere close to that. And they got to win that tournament, yeah. which is challenging. Bianca, we've been talking over an hour. And so we really should wrap up, even though I've got plenty more baseball questions for you. <laughs> and I bet you have plenty more baseball answers for me. But the last question I want to ask you is about advice. So you're young, so you don't have to go too far back to answer this question. But when you were 21, let's say, if you could today magically go back to the Bianca Smith when you were 21 years old, whatever you were doing at the age of 21, you may very well have been here at Dartmouth, and you could lean over and say, I have one bit of advice for you. There's one thing you want to know, or there's one thing you want to think about, or you don't know this now, but you will know it later. What might that be? What would be the advice you'd give to yourself at the age of 21?
0: Ignore the criticisms and the expectations and do what you want to do.
1: That's great. That is very powerful advice, actually. I think when people think about it, it will resonate in a lot of different ways. Bianca, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast, for chatting with me and educating me and our audience a little bit about baseball, but a bit more about life and the journey that you're taking. And I think we're all going to be following the next steps in your own career as well. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for listening to The Sidcast. I'm really excited to be bringing you Season 3 and really appreciative that you chose chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into to another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.